So here we are in Titus chapter 3. We're going to continue our teaching here in Titus. And so to, to start this off, we'll talk about the people there in Crete. I think it's important to understand the context that we're in. That it was a godless, it was a pagan society. And it was an unjust society. They, they would have an immoral culture. Back in chapter 1, if you remember Paul's words, he said that a Cretan, one of their own had said that they were always liars, that they were evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And this is what defined their culture. This was the type of people they were. And so as Christians there in Crete, who Paul is writing to, Titus, and then also to the churches there, they had been saved out of this culture. They had been saved out of that pagan society. And now they're living a part of the Christian community, living as God's people in His church, recognizing Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, rejecting the idolatry of the age, which would have been emperor worship, which would have been polytheism, that is, many gods. They rejected these things, and they left that culture behind. It would have been easy for them to look around at the society to think that they did not need to live peaceably with such a wicked people. Paul literally tells them to do the exact opposite here in chapter 3. In that very first verse, he tells them to be submissive. To be submissive to the rulers in their life and to the authorities in their lives. And as a part of the Christian witness, that was crucial. is how we behave as citizens. How we carry out our lives in society. And because Christians are to be about God's work, mainly the preaching of the gospel, mainly wanting and desiring to see souls saved, to go therefore and to make disciples of the nations. This is what Christians were to be about. And this is why Paul is calling them to be submissive to the ruling authorities so that their message might better be received. And so, why do you ask that? Why is that? Well, Christians are to be different than the world. They're, they're, not, they're not those that are without hope. And we live in this land as truly as strangers in this land. Yes, we're citizens. Yes, this is our nation. Yes, we are Americans. But as Christians, we know that this is not our final home. We know that this life is temporary, that it's just a blip on the radar, that our eternity is with Christ. And all of our life is to be lived with eternity in view. And so it's no different for the Cretans as it is for us that they were to live differently than the culture. They were to live with, with the hope, that blessed hope in Jesus Christ, that future hope in Him. Not putting all their weight on man, not putting all their weight on politicians, not putting all their weight in the emperor, saying, emperor, save us. No, it's God who saves the Christian. So that's where their heart is. That's where the Christian's heart is to be. And if the Christian is all about political motives, all about being an insurrectionist, being a rebel, you know, inciting riots, protesting all the time, it causes the culture to even more hate God's name. I want you to think about that a little bit. The, the Bible teaches that those that are apart from Christ hate God anyway. And so when Christians agitate, it causes them to hate God all the more. And so Christians aren't to be political agitators. Instead, they are to be those who are submissive to the ruling authorities. Now we're going to get into where some, there are some exceptions to that. 
But it, Paul goes on to say that we're to be the exact opposite in verse 2. Instead of being those ones who incite riots, we're to be ones who speak evil of no one, who avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. You know, as I read this, and you know, I'm on Facebook, and I meet a lot of different people, especially in the job, the, the work environment that I am in, and I think Christians need to read their Bibles more. I don't meet a lot of Christians that take this here, this verse, to heart. And I must confess that I also need repentance in this area. It is easy for me to be quarrelsome. It's easy for me to speak evil. It's easy for me to look at the culture and say, look at how evil they are. To talk about our politicians in less than flattering ways, I think it's far too easy for too many of us to slander. It's far too easy for too many of us to gossip about what others are doing. It's far too easy for the Christian to pick fights in this age that we live in with the unbelieving world. And oftentimes we'd rather be quarrelsome than we would rather be Christ-like. And some of us at times will appeal to righteous anger, and I myself have done it. We say, well, I hate what God hates. But when God is angry towards something, He is always pure. He is only always sinless. And His anger is white hot. It is pure. And it is incapable of sin. And it is always His anger is towards evil. It's towards unjust, injustice. It's towards sin. But unlike God, when we hate what He hates, it often leads to sin. We can't even handle our righteous anger. And it's a constant struggle in our flesh as Christians not to take that to a place of sin. Where instead of loving our neighbor, we actually just start to despise them. Which is the exact opposite of what Jesus said, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So some might say, what about the evil in our land? Are we not to fight against it? Yes, of course. Jesus called us to be salt and light in our land, and we live in a free country with the amazing blessing of being able to vote. And as Christians, we should never be lazy when it comes to voting. We should always do our research. We should vote for the righteous candidates. We should vote for the men that will put righteous laws in place that will re repeal the evil laws in our land. And we should do our part as good citizens to use what God has given us as means to see that evil in our land restrained. But we must ask ourselves as citizens, what is our focus? Is it not to see souls saved? If we're not about seeing people saved, if we're not about seeing souls transformed, people discipled, then we're literally putting a Band-Aid on a wound that's a mile wide. And that Band-Aid will do nothing. I just want you to think about that for a minute. We can make as many laws as we want, but if the hearts and minds are not changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, people will find ways to be evil. I want you to think about this for a minute. Just study history. Just take a little bit of your time, study history, look at it. There's no short of evil in history. 
of this world. And there are times where there was righteous laws. There was times where there was laws in place that were supposed to restrain this evil, but yet we see evil always persisting in this world. People have absolutely no issue with doing what is wrong. You know, even my two little sweet girls, who I often, I'm like, you know, are these? Yes, they're sweet, and they're, they're still sinners. Even though I look at them and I say they're so precious, they're innocent, they're sweet, you know, you leave them in a room for five minutes with a few toys, and one sister's grabbing the other one ready to hit the other one in the head with the toy. And if that didn't intervene, maybe it'd be the next Cain and Abel. I have no idea. It's <laughs> People are evil, and laws can't restrain what people want to do in their hearts. And it's the very purpose of our government. The very purpose of government, one of the purposes, the Bible says, is to restrain evil. And we should desire for those laws that would restrain evils. That is, that they punish the evildoer and they reward the behavior that is good by God's standards. Or the laws that would rescind what is evil in our land, like abortion that is an absolute atrocity, a holocaust, a modern-day holocaust. So as Christians, we cannot be neutral on abortion. We must hate what God hates, and we need to vote for people that will remove this wickedness from our land. But all that being said, our land, there is a lot of people that do not love God. And the generation behind us, they are far more godless than our generations were. And wicked people produce wicked rulers. This is just a fact. And those wicked ruler, rulers then produce wicked laws. So we can have these laws changed all we want, but if the hearts and minds of people are not changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will only be temporary. Our focus should be and must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way we act as a civilian in our society is important to how the world receives our message. It is important to how the world receives our message. Now let me give a caveat to that. I'm not saying that God doesn't save people with bad messengers because he still does. There is only one perfect messenger, and that was Jesus Christ. Every single one of us are imperfect messengers. We take the gospel of Jesus Christ in an imperfect way. But this does not mean that we should desire to do things that are contrary to God's will. Instead, he's asked us to be submissive to the authorities, to the rulers in our lives. And our imperfection should never be an excuse to be combative. We should never say, well, God will use this me, this imperfect person, to save people. We don't want to do what is contrary to God's will. And here in this verse, Paul says to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. He does not qualify the type of person. He says all people. Yes, even the most vicious, the most perverted the people that are the farthest away from God, we are to be gentle towards them. This does not mean that we do not expose sin. This does not mean that we do not tell the truth. This does not mean that we do not rebuke, and sometimes rebuke sharply. 
This does not mean that we don't lovingly lead people to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But whatever we do when we address those who we encounter in our lives, it must be with gentleness. It must be from a heart of love. It must be out of the desire to see them saved. And you might be saying, well, you don't know about this person. You don't know how bad they are or what they have done. And really, Paul brings up our objections in our heart in the very next verse. Listen closely to what he says in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We do not speak evil of the unbelieving world because we were once them. Paul reminds us here that we were all sinners. Not that we have all equally done evil things, but we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this, as we hear it, should be a gut check. This should cause us to swallow our pride and remember who we are. And remember who we once were. This verse is not saying that we are all as evil as possible. That's not what this verse is saying. But what it is saying is that we were all once foolish. What it is saying is we were all once lost. That we were all once slaves to sin. That we are all once slaves to the passions and the pleasures of this world. That we've all traded in the only one worthy of worship for what He has created. There's all been times where we've worshipped ourselves and we've worshipped what He has made instead of Him. And so, whenever we are self-serving, the verse goes on to tell us that whenever we go after those passions, whenever we go after those pleasures, whenever we go after those lusts of the flesh, it leads to contempt for others. Because it's all about you. It's all about what you want and what you desire. And this is the, the condition of man apart from Christ. And we all know this to be true as we hear it. It leads us to using others. When, when all we care about is sin, when, every, when all we care about is ourselves, it leads us to use others. And hate anybody that gets in our way, that gets in the way of what we love most. And we constantly invest in ourselves. And this causes the people around us to... A, hate us, and B, us hate them. And this is the condition of man apart from Christ. And I believe that our bitterness in our hearts, our slander, our resentment towards other, others, our hatred towards others, any unforgiveness in our hearts towards others is all because we are unaware of our own sinfulness. The more aware you are of how far you have fallen from God's standard, the more aware you are of your own guilt, the more aware you are of this great pardon that you have found in Jesus Christ, the more you will realize that you are like those who are foolish. And I believe in our church today, in our culture today, we lack the understanding of our own sin. We lack the understanding of how great and holy and mighty and pure God is and how far we fall from that standard. 
And really, when Christians get this, they treat others with love and respect because they realize how much God has loved them, how gentle God has been with them, how kind God has been with them. People might give pushback on this saying, well, I read that verse, I hear that verse, but that's not me. I can't relate to this. I don't, I've not done these things. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I would say you're denying the truth. That you're suppressing it in unrighteousness. You're lying to yourself. You know, we often say that God judges the heart. We say it in a positive way. Like we'll be happy when God judges our hearts. Like it could be a good thing or something. But when we say God judges the heart, it should cause us to be very afraid. It should cause us to run into the arms of Christ. It should cause us all to be desperately in need for a Savior. You know, when I was an unbeliever, I actually used to say this. I thought I was a good person. I thought God would save me. I didn't know who Jesus Christ was. I just had this vague knowledge of God. And yeah, I lived a very sinful life. But I would often say to Christians that would come into my life, God knows my heart. So what I was really saying is, I'm going to continue to sin. I'm going to continue to live life the way I want. And then when I stand before the judge, I hope he sees that I wanted to do good. That I wanted to believe. That I wanted to know Christ. But when the Bible says God judges our heart, that means that he's judging every single thought we've ever had. He's judging every single deed we've ever done. He knows every single evil intention that we've ever had. And when we say the heart, we're not meaning, meaning the muscle or the organ that pumps the blood to our body. The Bible is saying that it is the center of our being, that it's who we are. It's our emotions. It's our desires. And Jesus said that we speak out of the abundance of it. Mark 7, 20 and 23 say, and he said, it's what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceitful, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within the defiled person. This is the heart of man. Scripture says that none of us can know our hearts. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are all sinners. And really the Bible teaches we think we're sinners for the wrong reason. We think we're sinners because we go out and we commit sins. But the Bible tells us that our sinfulness comes from within. Because in Adam all of us fell because this world has been corrupted by sin. That each and every one of us were born into sin. That sin comes out of our hearts. It is birthed within us. And then that leads to sinful deeds. As R.C. Sproul says, we are not sinners because we sin. We are sinners, or we sin because we are sinners. Our sinful deeds come from a sinful heart. And it is clear that God judges not only our actions, but also our hearts. And Jesus said that if you've looked with lust, that you've committed adultery already in your heart. Jesus said that if you've had anger towards your brother, it is as if you have murdered him in your heart. 
Of course, the action is the greater sin. But Jesus makes it clear to us that God even judges the heart. So when we go to say, oh, that person is horrible. Did you hear what they said? Can you believe what he did? When we're so quick to yell, when we're so quick to get angry, when we're so quick to quarrel, we must ask ourselves, am I really different? Am I really much different than this person? Wasn't I once like them? Haven't I done similar things? Haven't I had similar thoughts? Have I not been tempted in the exact same ways that they've been tempted? Are we really that much different? Hasn't God forgiven me of so much in my life? I was once one of them. So when you realize the depths of your own sin, when you realize that God has been so loving towards you, that He's been so kind towards us, He now desires for each and every one of us as Christians to treat others with that same kindness. Amen. To live in such a way that says, once was some of you. I was once like them. And for us, as we look at this and we ask the question why, it's in hopes that they may be saved. It's in hope that they would leave that foolish life. It's in hopes that they would leave the pathway that leads to hell and that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. Consider these words of Paul to Timothy. In the context, yes, he's referring to a pastor or a teacher. But we know from here in Titus, there's a principle in these verses that's applicable to us all. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 26 says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Patiently endure evil, correcting with gentleness, not to be quarrelsome, why? In hopes that God may grant them repentance. In hopes that they would come to the knowledge of the truth. In hopes that they would be saved. This should be the heart of the Christian. Imagine if you're constantly quarreling with someone, constantly fighting over silly things of this world, being combative, being argumentative with someone. And then after arguing with them, you say, yeah, but you know, you really need Jesus. Will this not cause them to curse His name even more? I don't want to hear it from you. That's <laughs> exactly what they'll say. No, we're to be ones with gentleness, with love, with kindness, as God has treated us. We remember what we have been forgiven of and hope the same for them. For we were once like them. In verse 4, we go on to read of that goodness of God. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Paul now reminds the readers of how God has saved us. And we're not going to get all the way through these verses, 
today. We're going to go through them in a little bit of depth in the sermons to come. But I definitely want to look at them here this morning. And so even though we are what verse 3 describes, even though that is us, that we are sinful from the inside out, God has shown His goodness towards us. He's shown His love towards us, His kindness towards us. And you know, when I think of being a sinner, I think that, you know, it's really enough. If God just would have given us life, if, if He just would have given us this planet to live on and fed us and, and given us all the plentiful food of this earth and, and caused the rain to fall on our heads and the, the sun to shine on us, this is way more than we deserve. This is just pure grace for creatures that have rebelled against Him. And He is the one that said that the wages of our sin is death, but yet God allows us all to live. I would say, God, that's enough loving kindness. But He went far beyond that. He goes far beyond that. And he declares in Romans 5.8 that God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. John 3.16 declares this love for us, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is who our God is. He is a saving God. He is a gracious God. He is a good God. And we see His greatness, His goodness in His love for us, and it should all cause us to praise and glorify Him. So we were once the foolish... We were once the disobedient, the ones who were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And this is who we are. And even with this, God says, I'm going to save them. And in His loving kindness, He has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God Himself taking on flesh, becoming a man, and dying the death that you and I deserve as our substitute Christ has saved us even though we were once foolish verse 5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit in these verses here in Timothy Titus sorry in these verses here in Titus we see the Holy Trinity working in salvation. One commentator said this, it shows the three members of the Godhead actively involved in salvation of sinners. God the Father as the planner and initiator, the one who sends the Son. Jesus Christ is the agent of redemption, the one who accomplishes redemption on the cross, and the Holy Spirit as the instrument of regeneration and renewal, the, the one who gives us the new birth, the new life in Christ is the Holy Spirit of God. So here in verse 5, it says that we're not saved by works done by us in righteousness. There's nothing, absolutely nothing we can add to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Nothing we can do ourselves. It is all of God. He gets all the credit and all the glory for His saving work. And some, when they read this, some see baptism here in verse 5 when they read the washing And some say that it's through this baptism that we are washed. But baptism is a symbol of the washing that has taken place in your life by God Himself. 
This is the outward expression of what has happened on the inside. And it's this outward expression that we all as Christians must do, should do, are commanded to do. And it is a great thing that we all would, should want to do. But it is a work. It's a work. And verse 5 makes it clear that it's not by any work but it's only by His mercy. So it's not our baptism that saves us. It's purely by the grace of God, and it is through His mercy. It's through His Son's work on the cross. It is His pure grace towards us. Some might say in hearing this, how do we receive this? If we haven't done anything to earn it, how would we ever even receive this gift? And as John MacArthur says, all we can do is ask. All we can do is ask Him. Like the tax collector in Luke 18, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I am a sinner and I am in need of Christ. Please be merciful to me. Please save me, God. I know I don't deserve life in Christ, but please, God, would you save me from that judgment that is to come. And really, there's much more to say on these verses here, and we'll pick up next time I teach in them. But I want to wrap up today with this. It's so easy for us as Christians to complain about the world around us. It's godless, it's evil, it's wicked. It's easy for us to to complain. It's easy for us to slander. It's easy for us to gossip. And really, we must all admit this struggle. And it's even for the best of us. One commentator wrote that even the most sanctified among us struggle with slander. And I believe this is true. I think it's a great temptation. It's a sin that we've all swept under the rug when we revile others, when we speak things that are false about others, when we gossip just to make ourselves look better and other people look worse. This is the idolatry of self, and this is our temptation. We want to do this so that people think better of us and worse of others. Now listen, the Bible says that there are times to rebuke, and I absolutely believe this. There are times to give truth, and there's times to rebuke sharply, especially in those times of false teaching. And there are times to have righteous anger, to hate what God hates, if it can be kept from being sinful. There are even times to discuss others and discuss their lives, reasons that are rooted in, I hope, love for that person. But too often, we want to be quick to think the worst about people. We want to be quick to speak the worst about people, to quarrel with those around us. And we must be careful. And most of all, we must remember that we were once like them. And remember, God could save them at any moment, at any time, if He pleased. The fact that he has not done so yet does not mean that he will not in the future. And so whenever we're tempted to despise those around us, to despise those unbelieving co-workers that make our lives so hard to speak evil of our family members that, that hate Christ, whenever we're tempted to be constantly quarrelsome, to complain once again, about the people of this world, about our politicians, whatever it may be, please take the time to remember your own sin. 
take the time to remember that you were once hopeless to save yourself. Remember all that Christ has saved you from. Remember all that he did for you. Remember that he took your place, that he paid your ransom, that he took your guilt on his shoulders. That we were all once foolish. No one was born with the right understanding, the saving knowledge of the truth. We all had to come to it. And even those little kids, as we said about those two sweet girls of mine, yeah, they are sinful. And they will need Christ. And they are the foolish that this verse is talking about. And God has shown that goodness towards us all. And we were saved because of it. So let us live in such a way that displays this amazing grace to the world around us.